Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show. Um, we've done quite a few episodes on health, longevity, human performance. We've had some amazing guests. So today we have Professor Tim Spector, who I've had the honor to speak to before as well in depth about nutrition, the microbiome, and developments in in his projects. He's been working on Zoe as well. Um, and he's also published a book. There's a lot we're going to be talking about in this episode. Continuation of the last one, which I, I absolutely enjoyed. And I have Professor Kotha with me here today, uh, kind of a mentor of mine who is a professor in public health and does a whole host of different things. So as we kick off, um, first, I will go to Professor Kotha if she can introduce herself. And then we'll get started with our guest today, who we're very lucky to have. And, and we're distilling a lot of information in the realms of nutrition. Hi, Sohope, and uh, welcome everyone. I'm Kosa Hajash. I'm a professor of public health and epidemiology, and my work and passion is on uh, lifestyle health, prevention of chronic disease, and data-driven programs, research, and uh, increasingly moving towards consumer-facing prevention and personalized and precision prevention. I can already tell it's going to be a good conversation. We have a lot of expertise on this podcast and panel. So without further ado, Tim, welcome. Nice to be able to speak to you again. I think we organized this two or three months ago, and I know you've been up to a lot since. So please fill us in on your background, which I'm sure a lot of people are eager to hear about. And then what have you been up to lately? And Tim, by the way, you can unmute as well. <laughs> this is app is pretty new, so um, you can unmute bottom left. Hopefully you can hear me now. Very clearly, <laughs> yep. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, sorry for my um, tardiness with this with this app. I'm just getting used to it. The um, I, My background is as a medical doctor. I uh, trained in general medicine and rheumatology and... Uh, during that time, got interested in epidemiology and did a, a master's in epidemiology. And my research was really all epidemiology and uh, and did my thesis on the menopause and hormones. And then in 1993, switched to twin studies and sort of taught myself genetic epidemiology and twin studies. And then about 12 years ago, got really interested in the microbiome, and new, that le led me inevitably towards nutrition. So I've had so a number of different careers, if you like, within medicine, but by studying twins for 30 years, it's allowed me to look at lots of different things without being fixated on one very small uh, academic subject, which is what most of my colleagues do. So, you know, pros and cons of that, uh, but I think it's given me the ability to look at new areas, you know, from a, an outside point of view without any uh, uh, too much baggage. And um, I've also, in the last um, 10 years, uh, written three books. Um, first was on epigenetics and then um, wrote a couple on nutrition, diet myth, which was about microbiome, spoon fed, which was um, a, really about why we've got so much wrong and the influence of the food industry and my book which uh comes out this week called 
um, Food for Life, which is really a practical guide to how to eat. And that's sort of incorporating everything I've learned over the last decade, really, and uh, including some things that I've got right and some things I've got wrong and how my, my opinion has changed. But the idea is to try and translate that theory um, into some sort of practical help that so when people go into a shop or a supermarket, they sort of know what to look for in food and know how to make the um, the right food choices. And I think that's um, really the, the whole point of this, because I think the f- choices we make in our food are probably the most important things for our health and probably also for the planet. So that's there are two pretty good reasons. There's some really good reasons. And congratulations on publishing your third book. That's quite a lot in, in a decade. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. There's so many studies out there on nutrition. Nutrition is pretty difficult to study as well, and you know better than me. But I think having that practical output for people um, is is super meaningful because I know a lot of people who often, you know, they'll they'll listen to information and they'll be like, what does that mean in practical terms? How can we change our diet? How can we lose weight? How can we wake up with more energy? How can we sleep better? And, and it's those practical outcomes. So I, I'm super interested actually in the book. So, um, Tim, can you tell us about what's led to this book? I know, I know you've been involved with Zoe, which is very interesting nutritional research you've done there. And um, you spent a lot of time on that. And you did a lot in COVID as well. So can you tell us a little bit about what Zoe is and the concept behind that? And has, has that played a part in publishing this? Yes. Yeah, so the evolution of Zoe has really sort of mirrored the evolution of this book in that uh, I started this book about six years ago and Zoe about five and a half years ago. And Zoe came about when I was giving a, a book talk um, about the diet myth, which was all about the gut microbiome. And two guys in the audience uh, came up to me afterwards and said, we'd love to talk to you about forming a company about combining personalized nutrition, microbiome, blood sugar levels, you know, using AI. And that was really the the start of Zoe, which I was very surprised got off the ground because this actually does happen a lot in academia. People think they have brilliant ideas, but then no one can raise the money or have the you know the really big picture to uh, do something. And what was different about these two guys, George and Jonathan, is that they actually, like me, believed in doing the science first, not the marketing first. So the idea was to spend several years really getting very good solid science doing these Zoe predict studies to really back up any algorithms and predictions they were going to make and then also publish them in the top journals in the world and make it open to other scientists so this is why it took a while and it you know it took about three years of groundwork and doing these massive uh, nutrition studies before there was a commercial product but in the last year the commercial product's been launched in the US and uh, in the last uh, four or five months in the UK. And this is a basically a home kit of what um, we we did in our initial uh, clinical studies at at St. Thomas's Hospital and Mass General in Boston. And so it's a, it's a pared down version of exactly the same test. And the beauty of this is that we've now got 45,000 people in the US and the UK have done exactly the same experiment taking exactly the same food at exactly the same time of day and we've measured exactly the same measures in their blood sugar their fats and 
what's going on in their microbiome. So it's an incredible database and it's, um, it's, it's a brilliant way to combine uh, research, citizen science and, um, you know, being funded in, in super fast time so that you can do it five times quicker than the academic route. And, you know, everyone seems to be happy with it. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a very exciting time. And and this really has given me great insights into personalization. And so this other element of nutrition, which hasn't really been discussed, uh, certainly wasn't discussed 10 years ago, about how we all react differently to foods, whether it's fats or carbs or you know, probably also proteins. And also artificial sweeteners and emulsifiers, all the other chemicals that are in foods, ultra-processed foods, have very different reactions to them. And so this amazing data set is just getting bigger and bigger every week. And, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, like a, you know, a kid in a sandpit. I'm just uh, enjoying every minute of it. And it's, it's bringing us totally new insights into, into, you know, into food, how we eat, uh, and not only what we eat, but how we eat, and, you know, things like meal timings, fasting, etc. That's super interesting. So, um, Sorry, that's I'm... super interesting because we discuss a lot about how the future of health is is personalized, right? And um, this is kind of going in that direction by having so much data, and that's why I think a lot of tech companies move faster than traditional health. Um, so I find that super interesting, Kothar. Uh, over. Uh, thanks, I hope. So, Tim, I was at your book launch yesterday, and uh, I think the audience would be quite—I think they'd find it very useful if you could maybe give a recap of um, some key recommendations from the book. Yes. Um, well, the, really, I guess um, the book combines a lot of elements. It, it's quite a comprehensive one. It's got tables in the back about how my I score my foods on the Zoe scores, which I think is quite interesting. Um, so rather than scoring foods by carbohydrates and and uh, fats and sugars, which is what the, the governments in most countries do today, um, it scores it by your personal response to it, which I think is very much the future of how we're going to see labels and whether they'll be digital or, or actual printed, I don't know. But I think it's the idea that um, we, we need to look at food in a new way. We need to, um, rather than thinking about it just as pure energy and calories and this futile effort to measure these calories in and out, which has been at the heart of our miserable failure to control obesity and diabetes um, in the West, uh, needs to stop and needs to be replaced with a, a really hard look at food and its its constituent chemicals and its, uh, its thousands of chemicals it has and how they interact with your body in a different way to everyone else around you. and the fact that we interact very differently is because we have a microbiome that is uh, really unique to us. And in all our studies, we've included identical twins who are basically genetic clones. And through most of my career, I've been thinking that genetic determinism is the most important thing, particularly in diets and obesity and health. And all these new studies have, have proven me wrong, that the individuality of our gut microbiome is is really important in how we deal with foods and how our body responds to uh, 
fats or sugars with a, a, a blood peak, which can cause inflammation, etc. So I think what I've, I've, I've tried to do in this book is combine the, the new science of the microbiome with the new science of personalized nutrition and our results from the Zoe study to sort of dissect out all the common foods that we eat and come up with a, a better way of looking at food from a, you know, a completely different standpoint. And so the whole point of the book really is to get people to think about food in a very different way to what we've been brought up to think of it or, you know, how uh, we were taught in medical school or how we're still being taught um, in, you know, in all mainstream areas. And this will allow you, it's very empowering to give the individual back that uh, ability to, to start thinking about food in a different way. And I think we've now got the technologies uh, we've got the AI, we've got these glucose, continuous glucose meters, we've got home blood fat testing kits, which you can do very simply yourself. You've got amazing technology that can look at your gut microbes in great detail now um, at a fraction of the cost of it was 10 years ago. So all these things are becoming mainstream. And with that, we have to look at our, our foods very differently. So I gave an example yesterday of some of the things that I've changed my mind on just since writing the book. And one of them was bread. Um, so I used to think there were sort of healthy breads and unhealthy breads. And if it was, if it was brown and had a few uh, seeds in it, it was, it was going to be healthy and everything sort of white and stodgy was not. It turns out, you know, completely wrong um, that there's a tenfold difference in breads that all look the same. Uh, in terms of their fiber content. And they all have very different effects on me, on my blood sugar. So, uh, you know, I will always be looking at f bread very differently now. And I know that, you know, there's only some breads that I can have safely now, um, such as ra dense rye breads or uh, multigrain, particularly, again, with rye sourdoughs in particular. And all the other breads really have to be an exceptional rare treat for me. Otherwise, uh, very bad news for, for my body. Um, I, can, I can go on, but there are other areas where I change my mind about fish. Um, no longer believe that fish is a health food that um, everyone should be eating two portions a, a week of, which we're told by public health doctors to do. And the other areas where I saw massive differences just eating lettuce. How do you choose a lettuce? You think that'd be pretty trivial, but most people in, in this country, in the US, only eat iceberg lettuce, which has absolutely no nutrients at all. It's just water. Whereas other ones, uh, Italian Rossololo, have a thousand times more healthy polyphenol chemicals. And lots of other examples uh, in the book that made me you know, really appreciate other foods Things like mushrooms, uh, you know, quite a lot of evidence now that they have medicinal properties um, that, you know, people used to laugh at in the past. But now in combination with cancer treatments, you know, they really can make a big difference. So I think it's it's a really fast evolving world, the world of nutrition, particularly with the with these new advances. And, um, yeah, I'm happy to, to expand on any of those. Um, you know, there's many, many, many examples we could use. Uh, yeah, that's all really exciting. Uh, and we talk a lot about uh, 
the population taking accountability or having agency, but we haven't until now really given people the tools to do so. So it's great that you mention all of these tools that people can now use in their own homes to um, have greater control of their health and prevention. Um, so I'd like to maybe touch on the microbiome a little bit more and also the fish um, revelation. Um, so with the microbiome, we know that it changes quite frequently. It differs between individuals and it differs within individuals over time. And my understanding is that it differs quite rapidly or changes quite rapidly over weeks and months. And so uh, to what extent can we personalize um, uh, support for individuals and their microbiomes, for, for example, through different diets and supplements? Yes. Yeah, so you've you've touched on a very important point of the microbiome that unlike our genes it does change so you can't just make do with one measurement you you need to be measuring at different times in your life microbiome state is very variable up to about the age of four and then it stabilizes and from that point on you you tend to have a signature that is very much unique to you so um forensically you know it would be traced back to you with 99.9 percent accuracy because of these unique microbes that you have that maybe I don't or so how doesn't so um, the there is this uniqueness and there's this consistent message about your microbes which persist over long periods of time there are also elements of the microbiome that do change day to day they will change with every meal they'll change in night and day for example and they fluctuate so much that it is very difficult to actually quantify them. And then you have another set that uh, perhaps change medium term. So if you switch from being a, uh, a vegetarian to a meat eater or vice versa, over the course of a week, you'll see a shift in your gut microbes and you might get similar shifts with exercise or other uh, lifestyle changes as well. So I think, uh, the, the skill in the microbiome is to dissect out which are the um, sort of sentinel uh, microbes that are worth following over time that give a, re a true reflection of our gut health and not treat them all the same. And I think we're, we're making good progress there, but um, longitudinally there, there is a paucity of data. Um, and so this is one of the big challenges for the future is to say, well, you know, how can we reliably track uh, gut health by you know, by the change in people's diets? And uh, you know, no one's effectively done that yet, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, because of some of these problems. But I think with the Zoe plan and the idea that you know we should soon get beyond a hundred thousand people, um, we we can sort this out with big numbers and. AI and uh, mathematically get to know what the core species are that are reactive to say diet or exercise or, or lifestyle that are um, that do move a bit but are not so uh, all over the place that they just confuse you. Does that does that answer? Yes, it uh, does. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and um, uh, so it's an evolving science for sure. And we we hear a lot and I think many people know about the, the gut health uh, impact uh, and benefits from improving our microbiome but actually there are also uh, 
benefits on our kind of health and aging for other organs as well. So for heart disease, uh, brain health, skin, hair. Um, could you do, do you delve into those in your book, or is that an area you've been looking at? Yes, and I think um, certainly over the last five years, the role of the gut microbiome has expanded way beyond the gut, as you said, and we know that um, most of the the immune cells in our body are actually lining the gut and are interacting with our gut microbes on a uh, an hourly basis. They're swapping information and chemical signals, etc., to help one another get our immune response right, whether that's, you know, stress responses or it's response to infection or it's um, making sure we don't get into food allergy problems. And so just knowing that the, the gut microbiome is an essential part of the immune system suddenly means that that takes a much more broader context of the whole of the whole system. And if you think of the microbiome, not as actual microbiome, microbes crawling around that sound a bit yucky and and weird but you think of them as actual uh multi thousands of mini pharmacies all slightly different and all able to change the food we eat into a, different chemicals and once you do that you you think you can think of this whole system as basically producing these chemical metabolites which are crucial for our body's function and that makes it easy to then think about how the, the immune system works and how these signals can get passed around the body, how they can send neurotransmitters to the brain to make us happy or sad, change our appetite levels, and how they can dampen down inflammation or heat it up if, if you know, they're, they're uh, pointing the wrong direction. And it also, uh, I think, is... Uh, important for understanding how it balances our metabolism, um, responsible for exactly what point you, you feel hungry or full, your appetite levels, and interacts with all the medicines you take as well. So we've, I think studies have shown that up to about 50% tested so far of, of the common medicines, they can clearly show an interaction with the gut microbiome, and that's probably an underestimate. And that also means they're interacting with the chemicals in your food, um, artificial sweeteners, emulsifiers, uh, preservatives, et cetera, et cetera. So they have an extremely wide role. So it, it, I think, you know, it is considered also a virtual organ. So if we, if we can sort the gut microbiome out, that is, and you, and you test someone, you say you've got really healthy gut microbiome, that's a much better test of your current health than, say, doing a DNA test. And I think it's this, this is how we, we need to evolve this science to, to sort of work out, you know, what the, the most healthy gut microbiome really looks like and you know, how we can, um, we think we know how to improve it, but it'd be nice to sort of prove it quantitatively. Yes, yeah, so that's a great point. Until recently, when we talked about personalized uh, medicine, we really were only talking about genotyping, but as you say, the microbiome has far greater potential in personalizing our health, both prevention and probably treatment going forward. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some great so, examples with cancer um, that the micro, you know, the state of your gut health when you start 
say immunotherapy for solid tumors like kidney you know prostate melanoma um you know is the single most important determinant of your uh survival six months later and that's because they interacting with the immune drugs that you know if they're all pointing in the right direction they're helping those immune drugs fight the cancer and if you haven't got those the right set of microbes or you're lacking those chemicals you know they simply won't work as well and i think this is why you know every doctor really does need to know much more about the microbiome and also diet so i think it suddenly gives a reason for you know doctors have been rather ignorant of of nutrition and diet to suddenly wake up and say this is really important because it's now interacting with something i do know about i do care about which is you know my important medications and drugs yeah absolutely so i'm going to just shift gear a little bit to one of my favorite topics which is meat consumption and um uh, i think i'll quote uh henry dimbleby from a few days ago uh, who gave a talk at the rspca and he quote he cited meat consumption as the single most important uh, thing we can do to improve the whole food system and our health. Uh, so eating less meat and in the food strategy that he um, uh, wrote for the UK, uh, he set a goal for a 30% reduction in meat consumption. So what is your take on this? And, and is there a link with the microbiome and our other dietary patterns? Well, yes and no. Um... So in this book, I, I do look at the environmental environmental impact of all the foods, and that adds a whole new context. As most people have chosen foods on religious or ethical grounds or health, so suddenly we've got this extra one of the environment, really, which I think we all need to make a personal decision on, or how much do we, you know, choose our diet based on that. And in the end, most people are going to make a a balanced view on that across all those domains but i think i agree with him that the single most important thing we can do in say this country to help the planet is to uh, reduce eating of red meat and uh, that is pretty clear cut from all the data and i think is gaining you know, pretty much unanimous uh, belief. And it's, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we will be healthier. It does uh, depend on how much we were eating beforehand. Also depends what you replace that meat with. And I think that's really important as we, as we, you know, look at the, the past mistakes in nutrition where, you know, and we still have these these mistakes on things like the eat well plate, etc., uh, that are you know public health advices. When you demonise something like fats, and you say you don't eat fat, then what do you replace it with? And in the past, we've replaced it with refined and starchy carbs, which has been worse than fat. Whereas if we replaced our meat with, um, you know ultra-processed fake like fake food, it might be worse for us. But I think in, in terms of the carbon footprint of climate change, there's absolutely no doubt that um, 
beef and lamb are so much worse than any any other food for us in terms of the land use, etc. We should all be uh, reducing that right down. Just have it as an occasional treat, not as a basic right, you know, to have every day. And we should be replacing it with other forms of vegetable protein that are very good for us and also very good for the planet. Things, as I said, like mushrooms or lentils, legumes. Uh, you know, there's so many other things that we're just not eating much of that um, I agree on. So, yeah, the environmental impact is really important. And some of the choices are, you know, night and day. You'd have to be eating like 100 times more of something else to to, to replace the um, uh, the beef or the lamb, which is a pity because, you know, uh, a lot of people like and get enjoyment out of eating these things. But we've got to start realizing that it should be an expensive luxury like it used to be rather than, um, you know, a, a sort of daily staple. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you on all those points. So, Tim, we do have a question um, from Jenny as well. So before we go to that, though, um, I think another subject um, that's super interesting, and you've done a call out for this recently, a study, intermittent fasting, um, that a lot of people argue about, a lot of people want to know more about, a lot of people kind of have their own um, ways of doing it as well. Um, and I saw you in Dr. Chatterjee's uh, podcast as well. I know he's interested in fasting as well. So what's your what's the current evidence and what's your present take on, on the most effective strategies for fasting and, and what are the benefits? And, and what are you hoping to achieve from conducting more research into this? Yes, yeah, so intermittent fasting is a very broad umbrella term that hopefully we'll be able to get rid of soon because it's a bit too broad and it includes any real change to your normal uh, timings of meals and amounts of meals rather than the actual contents of them. And in the past, people remember things like the 5-2 diet of Michael Mosley that was around 10 years ago that was uh, eating normally five days a week and two days a week you would have 500 calories uh, very small amounts of food uh, knowing that you were basically fasting hungry until the next day and then you carried on as normal um, that was seen to have any rather I'd say limited benefits for most people um, people did tend to lose some weight but it's, after six months it was very hard to sustain it uh, your body seemed to get used to it and it, it, it got harder. So the current ideas are, are actual fasting properly. So we don't consider that now a fast because it was 500 calories. So fasting now is when you're actually not giving your gut anything to uh, change your, your blood levels of things. So um some people do a 24-hour fast where they're eating nothing but uh, water. and But increasingly, the trend is for this time-restricted eating form of intermittent fasting. That's the most popular one, particularly in the US now, where it's practiced by many people. And many people doing the Zoe kit are already doing time-restricted eating in the US. And that involves extending your overnight fast uh, beyond the uh, sort of average, which is probably uh, 10 hours, we think, in this country, to uh, around 14 hours. 
And so that means that you're not uh, stressing your body with with food or um, drink that uh, would change your metabolism at times. So your body is in a relaxing mode such that it doesn't switch things on. It doesn't switch on uh, stress hormones and it can start all the repair of not only the cells in your body, which goes on continually, but is aided in that state where the body just knows it's in relaxation state, but also in the gut where the microbes, if they're not being sent food, switch teams and they have like a defense team that comes out and different species come out and they're cleaning up the mess left over from the day. They're tidying up your gut barrier. They're improving your immune system. And there have now been a number of randomized controlled trials now showing that this uh, this form of eating, even if you don't uh, tell people to change their calories, improves metabolic health. So will reduce the your sugar peaks during the day. It will reduce your blood fat levels, the triglycerides, reduce your inflammation levels. And in some, but not all studies, uh, you have a modest reduction in weight. And there are arguments about how long you should do it for. Um, there are some extreme ones who try and eat all their meals in four hours and fast for 20. Others say you get a decent result at 12 hours. And the sweet spot seems to be about 14. And then there's other arguments about whether you should fast early in the day or late in the day and do all your eating in the, in the early part. And simply the studies we have so far are on such small numbers of people that we, we can't really separate out these different elements. And so there's still a fair bit of uncertainty about the exact timing, whether it matters what age you are, whether men and women respond the same, whether women are you know, on HRT or having around perimenopause uh, need to do the same thing. And that's, that's why we've launched this uh, massive community study called the Big If Study uh, through the Zoe Health Study app, which is the free app that everyone can download and, and take part. And I think we've already got uh, nearly 50,000 people signed up uh, to do this mass experiment so that we can feed the results back to those individuals, but also to everybody so that we have enough people in all these categories to rework it out. Because very often, you know, a scientific experiment doesn't work as well in, in real life as it does in a very controlled setting in a lab where you're paying volunteers to turn up and uh, you're pampering them so they don't drop out. And, you know, real life is, is full of uh, pitfalls for, for following advice. So we're really keen to get anyone and, you know, the people listening would love you or everyone to join. Just download the app and join and get some insights yourself. So we're measuring mood which other people haven't always measured. We're measuring energy levels, how it changes your sleep. We're monitoring, you know, does it change your exercise? And, you know, uh, over time, seeing whether it changes your weight at all. And you, you can be free to monitor your blood pressure and other things. So I think it's a chance to actually see whether these things suit some people, uh, but not others. And I expect we'll see more variety than we've been seeing in the uh, clinical trials. So we're keeping an open mind. I think Sounds really, really promising. Um, and uh, I'm super interested when, when the results start to get published, uh, what they'll show. Um, let's go to Jenny, our caller. Jenny, if you have a question for Professor Tim, 
Uh, you may speak. Thank now. you. I have a keen interest in the ideal diet for pregnant and lactating women, and not just the diet that will create a healthy child, but also the diet that will perhaps prevent postpartum depression and other anxieties. Um, and Dr. Tim, I'm curious about you mentioning trauma. You just kind of hit it in passing. We all know trauma causes cortisol to rise in the body and inflammation. So do you mind addressing those two topics of inflammation from trauma and what a healthy diet would look like for a pregnant mother? Yeah, so I, I think I was, when we talk about inflammation in the body, we're talking really about uh, something that's a natural process in order to fight infection and uh, deal with, you know, foreign invaders. And so when we talk about raised inflammation after meals, for example, we're talking about just this extra stress to the body that's caused by having to deal with a high sugar spike or um, high fat levels, which both are associated with greater inflammation. So the whole the blood vessels are just stressed more than uh, they should be normally. And so that's equivalent to a small steady trauma continuing over and the same thing is caused by possibly anxiety and depression which can stress the, the body and system and cause this low-grade inflammation as can many chronic diseases many many problems so i think we're we're coming to terms of trying to work out what all these things have in common um and you know we know that uh Women's reproductive cycles also causes stressful times of the month, etc., where your metabolism does change. And we've seen this in the Zoe study showed that around the menopause, uh, inflammation levels do go up after eating where they didn't before, you know, just a couple of years before, showing that, uh, you know, just a subtle change to your body can uh, cause extra stresses if you're, you haven't sort of recalibrated what you eat or do uh, but some stresses are good i mean exercise is a stress and that's generally considered to be you know a small amount of stress is good for you so it's it's sort of hard to define it uh, but uh, i think increasingly we're, we're getting you know, getting used to saying well how do we you know incorporate the good stresses in our life and try and avoid the bad ones and uh, that's that's the current challenge but general principle is you know, particularly with meal times and nutrition, you want to avoid those excess stresses following a meal, and you'll feel much better if you do that. And in the Zoe study, we were surprised to find that people had successfully done it for three months. The number one thing they noticed was they had less uh, tiredness and had more energy and uh, uh, improved their mood. So I think there's a real link between those 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 things that we didn't. Mm -hmm. expect things like sugar peaks and fat peaks on on mood and energy um, in terms of uh, breastfeeding women and uh, the whole pregnancy area this is not an area where we've so far got any data uh, obviously when you start anything new in the field of medicine uh, your ethics board won't let you do anything on poor old pregnant women and so as a consequence they're the least studied group of, uh, of of women in the world, I find, and uh, I really think it is a I shame. That, I did want to just come back to the fish, um, the subjects of fish and cutting out fish 
from the diet. So that obviously will be uh, quite a surprise to uh, the readers and listeners. So could you touch on uh, your reasons and justifications for that recommendation? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fish lover uh, to eat and to look at. And I was, when I did my previous books, I said, there's no point really uh, attacking fish. You know, it's obvious it's good for you. It's in every single country's recommendations. And it's, you know, the USDA and the uh, and the UK NHS guidelines of how, you know, two portions of fish, ideally uh, oily fish, uh, every week for everybody. And there were a couple of things that uh, made me rethink that. The first was that uh, if you think about our environment, that is completely unsustainable. If if uh, most of the country did eat two portions of fish uh, in most countries, we would have no uh, fish in the oceans within about five years. We'd, we'd completely driven them out. And most of our fish also comes from fish farms, 60% of our fish now. And... People think that's a good way to do it because it doesn't harm the oceans, but actually it takes many more fish to uh, grow a fish in a fish farm than it does uh, in nature. So you're, you're accelerating the loss of uh, natural fish anyway. So the sustainability was the number one. The second thing was that when I relooked at the epidemiology evidence, I saw that when you do meta-analyses where you summarize all these observational data, you do find about some protective effect around 10 to 11 percent reduced mortality, um, cardiovascular disease, which is sort of for an observational studies within the bounds of error, because it's very hard to adjust for everything, uh, because most fish eaters generally are healthier than non-fish eaters. So finally, that was a bit of a red flag. And the other one is all the recent studies of massive studies looking at omega-3 which is the poster child, if you like, of uh, vitamins, uh, have shown no effect on the vast majority of the population in randomized controlled trials. So all the epidemiology suggests omega-3 is good. When you do a randomized controlled trial, you put a supplement uh, against a dummy, uh, you see no effect on heart disease, cancer, um, osteoporosis, strokes, anything except in a small group of people and one of them I think could be pregnant women and the other one uh, people who recently are just within a few months have had a heart attack so that's why I think fish is not a definitely not a, a bad thing to eat uh, but it doesn't have this massive health benefit that makes it worthwhile uh, destroying the oceans for so we again we should have it as a treat not as a, a routine yeah, it's, I think uh, that brings us to an interesting point, which is that uh, foods, uh, the way we handle food and um, how our bodies react to food is in combinations of different food products and components. And when we then um, measure the impact of supplements, we're taking those in isolation. And, and so I don't think it's directly comparable to uh, to take in supplements uh, as opposed to real foods and um, um, the epidemiology for uh, fish intake as you say it's it's not clear-cut there's some evidence I think for um, 
pescatarians or, or people who eat um, vegan diets with fish having lower cardiovascular mortality and, and death. Uh, did you not see that play out in the meta-analyses? Well, it just, it wasn't striking. So, you know, there was always this overlap between the groups that suggests that if you took, you know, pescatarians against occasional meat eaters, uh, it was hard to see any real difference because my view is that a lot of these effects are due to what else you put on the plate. And these these studies tend not to really measure those very well. So um, in other studies we did, we, we found no difference between meat eaters, pescatarians, vegans or vegetarians in terms of gut health. Interestingly, uh, if you uh, adjusted for the number of plants they were eating in a week. And so right. uh, it's sort of my point is, I think we've been overemphasizing the benefits of meat or fish over plants, whereas actually it's probably that most fish eaters tend to eat more plants than meat eaters. And so and that which is good. You know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think it, it means our focus should be on uh, looking, getting more high quality, diverse, high quality plants into people's diets than saying it's really critical that everyone has, you know, two portions of fish uh, a week otherwise you know they'll they'll have uh, heart attacks or um, their kids will have problems at school all of these things which have now been pretty much disproved so you know i think fish is a perfectly healthy thing to eat for most people but it's not good for the planet it's not particularly better than many other foods that are whole foods or, or plants if you compared them and I think we've just overhyped it in the past, and I think we just need to reevaluate it, you know, bring it down to earth, if you like, and um, change the way we, you know, we we see it. And there are some fish that are exceptions to this. So uh, shellfish like mussels and clams, for example, are totally sustainable and are full of healthy nutrients. But large fish, you know, our tunas, our sea bass. Uh, our cods uh, are not. So I think, again, there's nuance within that fish group um, to look at it again. So, Tim, this brings me nicely onto the topic of recommendations. So we've all heard of kind of the five fruit and veg. And when I was in medical school, I think UCL did some research suggesting I think seven to ten fruit and veg was more the number that we should be eating daily. Um, and I understand a lot of behavioral elements of why five was the number chosen by, um, you know, the UK guidelines, but is there a number we can we, we can suggest? Because every fruit and every vegetable, like you've pointed out, has different nutritional value and it's different for different people. But would you say in terms of fiber content and, and average nutrients, there could be a number we should be aiming for every day? Uh, well, what I've um, come up with, and I think other people have come with similar consensus, is this idea of 30 different plants a week. And I think the, the you know, the, the fruit and veg was flawed because, you know, very often you get uh, stickers saying that, you know, orange or apple juice is healthy, you know, part of your five a day uh, or these highly processed foods are part of your five a day. And it is just total nonsense. You know, um, orange juice should be in the dangerous for health aisle, not the health aisle. Um, so we need to move people away from that. 
you know, it didn't work anyway. Only about 2% of people, I think, followed that um, re recommendation strictly or understood it. Um, so I think it's it's getting the idea that large numbers of plants need to be eaten over a week and not the same ones. That That's going to optimize all the nutrients you get from it and also optimize your gut health. And the number of 30 came from this epidemiology study that uh, we did between the British gut study and the American gut study. And that was uh, the sweet spot uh, that we found. And um, I think most people say, oh, that seems ridiculous. You know, if you can't get people to have um, five fruit and veg, how are they going to manage 30? Well, I think we need to change people's minds about what what plant is. Plant actually, in my mind, is is a, a cup of coffee because... If it's black coffee, it's got no sugar in it. It's actually got a reasonable amount of fiber in it. It's got lots of polyphenols. And so have nuts, so have seeds, so have herbs and spices. And all of these are now being shown to have health benefits. So if we lump them all together, uh, then I th and start changing people's opinions that that's the important thing. It's that variety on that, on that weekly plate we want to see. And uh, there's, a, you know, good evidence that people who do follow that do end up being healthier because it, it's it sort of excludes many other unhealthy ways of eating if you've got that as your base and it means you can add meat to it if you want add fish to it if you want add tofu to it if you want um you know it, it it's it's much more flexible and i guess leading from that finally something that a lot of uh, people wanted to know about, a trendy topic, weight loss. So you talked about personalized nutrition, you talked about microbiome changes can have implications when it comes to kind of energy consumptions. And we, we obviously uh, traditionally have the theory of calories in, calories out. And now we're realizing that's a bit more nuanced than that. What are your kind of advice or tips for people wanting to lose weight in terms of nutrition more specifically? Um, is it about having a healthier gut? Does that aid it? Um, do we need to find out more? Is it down to our genetics? Does it change throughout our life? I'd love if you could shed some light on that. Well, it's, there's clearly multiple factors on why people are overweight. In, in the UK and the US, it's primarily because we are eating too much junk food, too much ultra-processed food that is highly refined, that is... You know, going straight into our bloodstream, it's not going to our gut microbes, and it's making us overeat as well. So we're feeling hungrier than we would if we were eating whole food. So just by switching from uh, the average US, UK diet to a whole food diet, predominantly uh, whole food, whole uh, plant-based diet, and ignoring calories will improve uh, virtually everyone's health. Now, I don't think people should be looking for rapid weight loss uh, regimes. They, they have a, a, a very impressive record of failing because the body will, will bounce back. But if you do this very gradually over months, then uh, there are, that is a, a better sustainable way to, way to keep your weight off. So I think it's very much about healing yourself within, sorting out your gut microbes, sorting out you're uh, getting rid of these sort of semi-addictions to ultra-processed food tastes and improve that diversity of real foods. That, that's, that's the way I say things are going. And it's, 
improving your metabolism, getting less inflammation, more energy, all these things. And it's something that's sustainable over years. I think that's the way to, to start thinking about weight loss. You know, the two key weights, you know, for weight loss, we have, you know, surgery and we have these new uh, GLP-1 drugs. They're, they're the only proven ways to, uh, to lose weight. Uh, but I think diet is absolutely crucial, you know, as ex exercise for improving your health and certainly making sure you don't put any weight on. And in, in some people, they will get some weight loss. Thanks. And as we come to the end of this brilliant conversation packed with so much information, as a reminder that this will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for listeners to re-listen to. And Professor Koto, if you have any final questions, um, you can ask them. Um, and my final question would be, so with Zoe and, and with a lot of the research you've done, you're using continuous glucose monitors, you're testing the microbiome, um, going towards a personalized approach. So Apple have just announced that they're going into health insurance in 2024 and Apple Watch is um, progressing quite quickly as well. So from a technological standpoint, do you feel with these advancements in AI and tech, will we almost have a personalized health coach or a nutrition coach that will guide us throughout the day that, hey, in a week, like you mentioned 30, you're on 28, you need to get to 30. Or, you know, your microbiome, you need certain foods or your blood glucose is spiking. So maybe fast for two days. Do, do, you, do you feel like there is space for something like that? Well, definitely, because I think that's where the Zoe product will be in a few months. Uh, wow. So it already exists, but what things like you know changes to the Apple Watch, for example, will bring the the price barrier down and make it more accessible. So that the idea of everyone having a a digital coach, if you like, uh, is is goes from just being you know for rich people who can afford a a real you know dietitian nutritionist. Um, to, you know, the people that can afford a Zoe product, which is like a digital one, to something that's even easier that, you know, uh, could be even cheaper and more accessible. So absolutely, this is this is very much the exciting future that technology is unlocking. I love that. I'm actually super excited to try out Zoe as well. Uh, Professor Kota? Uh, it's been a fantastic session. I guess I would uh, put my public health hat back on and say, um, that many of the recommendations for diet over the decades, which have clearly not worked in terms of diabetes and obesity, they've been huge overgeneralizations and almost heuristics, which were convenient and packaged in a way that's convenient for um, systems. But actually for end users, we need to now rethink what a healthy diet looks like. And we have the ability now to personalize that and tailor that. So that's my first point and the second one is that i don't think we're in a situation now where we can only look at a health promoting diet i think we have to look uh, simultaneously at diets that are health promoting and sustainable and there's a very large overlap between the two it's not complete but i think it's the right thing to look at both um together for the uh, environment thanks for that summary professor Kota. i think i think i would agree with that completely and Professor Tim Spector, um, congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all your wisdom and, and a lot of research you've spent more than a decade doing. Um, 
and grateful to have it as well because I think not enough is done from health professionals and doctors in the fields of lifestyle medicine, how I call it, or nutrition as a facet of that. And to have truly preventive medicine and to improve our health spans and live longer and healthier lives, I think we do need to combine technology, AI, with advances in preventive medicine so we know the actions and behaviors we do every single day impacts our health and helps us kind of optimize our performance, be it at work, be it with family, be anywhere. So this was super interesting and very knowledgeable. So before we kind of sign off, I want to know where can people buy your new book? What's it called? And where can people follow you? Uh, yes. Well, it's uh, the book is called Food for Life. And uh, you it comes out everywhere on Thursday, I think it is, the 27th. Some shops, stores may have it now. You can certainly pre-order it, usual online, and that, that big company beginning with A uh, also has it. And the um, people can join uh, uh, if they go to the, if the commercial product for, for Zoe Nutrition. They can go to joinzoe.com and uh, they can get on the waiting list in the UK or they can get it directly in the US. There's no waiting list there. And in um, if they want interested in the downloading the free app, the sort of citizen science app, we're doing all this great stuff on following tracking infections and mood and these interventions. They download the uh, Zoe Health Study app, and that's that's totally free. And you can take part in these intermittent function, uh, intermittent fasting studies, and get great insights and, and be a citizen scientist. So. Plenty of different things for people to do. And I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram, just Tim Spector. Thank you so much. And I'm sure a lot of people will be pre-ordering the book. I know I am um, to get myself reading. And um, guys, this will be available on Apple and Spotify, as I've said before. So please give us a rating. Um, and the Human Behavior Club is close to 750,000 members. Um, and this is the podcast uh, for our Clubhouse Club as well. I do it on Colin app. So do download that and check that out. We do this kind of weekly podcast here. And we're lucky to have experts like Professor Tim Spector to kind of really distill down what's happening in all things health, wellness, and longevity. So you can catch me in the next episode. And this episode will be available pretty soon. So thank you once again, Professor Tim Spector and Professor Kothar as well. I'll catch you guys pretty soon. Bye.